Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Proverbs 17, Proverbs 17, verse number 14. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here. It's been a wonderful weekend so far. I've been able to see some of you that I've known from way back 15 years ago when Mike and Larissa first came here. And I remember how God brought them here, and it was a wonderful time. And we were excited to be a part of that, even at a little bit, while we were in between churches. And uh, Ronnie, I'm thankful for your faithfulness through all those years as well. But it's been wonderful to see what God's done in Mike's life and through this church and through the pastors that have served here and through many of you. And you've blessed me over the last couple of days and my wife as well. And I praise God for his work through you in that regard. And so it took Mike 15 years, but he gets a Sunday off today. And uh, praise God that I can help him with that gift. But this morning, I want to consider Proverbs 17, 14, just one verse as we conclude what is uh, really a, a bigger series of sermons here that we've put together for the last couple of days on marriage. If you weren't here for those other days, that's all right. It'll still work out fine for you, but I do want to do a quick recap before we get to our text. We began the, the week, as it were, on Friday by going to Matthew 22 and the Great Commandment. And we considered the foundation for really all relationships, but no doubt for our marital relationship as our devotion to God. We saw how the Lord Jesus Christ connected our love for God, our devotion to God, uh, to our love for our neighbor. And we talked about how our spouse is our closest neighbor. We saw how one necessitates the other. To be devoted to God is to love other people. John would say in his first epistle, if you don't love other people, you don't love God, even if you say you do. So we talked about the importance of being devoted to God. Then we moved on from there, went to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 4 through 7, and asked the question, well, if we're supposed to love our closest neighbor as we love the Father, what would that look like practically? What, what does it look like? What does it require of me to love my wife this way or love my husband this way? Or you could apply it to just loving other believers in the body of Christ this way. It was hard because, because the the way the Bible defines love is much different the way than the world defines love. And it calls for selflessness and sacrifice and grace and for bearing long with others and being patient and putting ourselves second and putting others first. And we walk through what it would look like to apply that in the context of those that are about to be married or those that have just recently been married or maybe those that have been married for many years. We moved on from there to, to into more of a case study stage. And we talked about, well, well, what does it look like when we, when we do fail to love our spouses the way that God has intended us to do? What, what, what's really going on theologically and what's going on spiritually? What's going on in my heart when I'm so inclined to say, it's her fault, it's, it's his fault. I, I said this because of what you did or didn't do or, or I felt this because of what I perceived you were thinking. What's really going on there? We talked about our our, our knack of being bad at diagnosing problems, especially in the context of relationships with those we love. And we considered this concept of, of looking into this war that Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 is raging in the heart of every believer who's been born again. We receive new hearts, but they reside in old bodies. And Paul refers to that as the flesh or the old man. We talked about that. Well, this morning, I want to go even further on the practical application side, and I want to make one more step, as it were, in the case study category and get as narrow and specific as we possibly can and talk about one specific example. And you can apply this, if you're not married, to the context of every relationship you have, children with parents, parents with children, with coworkers, with friends, but no doubt we can apply this in the context of marriage most specifically. What do I do 
when I'm about to enter into a conflict. Let's look together at Proverbs 17, verse number 14. Just one simple verse here, but this verse is so instructive when it comes to how the believers should seek to honor God when that war is raging within with the flesh against the soul and my temptation is now not to love my spouse with that forbearing, patient, gracious, selfless love and maybe my devotion to God has slipped a little bit and I'm establishing myself as the one that needs to be worshipped and honored above all things and I'm demanding my way at my time. What do I do when I feel I'm right there? Listen to what the author writes. The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. How many of you are familiar with northeast Georgia, or northwest Georgia, rather? Uh, Tacoa Falls or Tacoa, Georgia? Or, um, a couple of you have been up there. You've seen that place? Well, Tacoa Falls is a wonderful, beautiful, natural waterfall. It's about 200 feet tall. Not a lot of water there. In fact, if you make the long drive up for the waterfall, you're going to be disappointed. It's not that good, but it's still a pretty cool waterfall. And there, it's actually on the campus of Tacoa Falls College, one of the oldest Bible colleges in the nation. Actually, the second oldest Bible college in the nation. My wife and I went there many years ago. And uh, it's a beautiful, scenic area, but this waterfall has a, a really rich history, a really dark history, rather, there, were, there was a time years ago in the 60s, actually in the 70s, 1977, when one night after several days of sustained rain and after a lot of warnings, this old sort of man-made earthen dam that held back the lake above this waterfall, it gave way in the middle of the night. And all of a sudden, 130 million gallons of water careened over this 200-foot waterfall and 30-foot high wall of water came crashing down through the valley below. And over the years, this school, which was dedicated to missions as a part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination, it had set up these temporary houses. You would know them as trailers along that riverbank to house missionaries. And that night in the middle of the night, almost 40 people died in their sleep as this 30-foot wall of water came crashing through that valley. You can imagine the terror. What a horrifying scene. It's shocking to me that that's the imagery that God chose to describe what's happening when a conflict is about to break out between you and another believer. That imagery of this giant wall of water from a dam breaking that's about to cause massive destruction far beyond what you uh, likely anticipated when you began that argument. Paul, the Lord uses that imagery, that picture. It's so vivid, so rich, so clear to describe what's taking place in the midst of conflict. As we take this last step in this study, as it were, on mercy and marriage, I want to talk about what the Lord would have us to do when we sense that dam's about to break, when we sense the water in the lake of our hearts is rising, the flesh is starting to be embroiled, we're starting to turn within, we're starting to think, I deserve, I need, I demand, and we start to look to this gift that God's given us in a spouse as our enemy, or maybe your children, or maybe your parents, what do we do when this is about to break out. Our text is going to give us essentially two roads to travel down, two trains of thought to keep in mind, two responses, as it were, to the beginning of conflict. The first is simple. Recognize what you're dealing with. Recognize what you're dealing with. He says the beginning of strife is like 
releasing water. This is interesting language. It's clearly a metaphor. This is illustrative language. And I actually was converted as an adult. I I wasn't raised in a religious or Christian environment at all in Southern California. Never met a religious person until I joined the Marines. Had no Bible context, no spiritual context, no religious context whatsoever. So as I, as an uneducated, as it were, adult in the Marines, was first brought into Christianity when I was first converted and handed a Bible, I was struck by how easy at times it was to read. And here's what I mean. God has gone out of his way to give us figurative language because he wants us to understand his word. It's a wrong perspective to suggest that the Word of God is is something that's so difficult to understand and we need this sort of special lens in order to do that. No, if you're a born-again believer and you have the indwelling Spirit of God, you have the ability to understand what God wants you to hear. And so many times he chooses language that we'd say, yeah, I understand that and now I can understand this, which is otherwise so significant, so deep spiritually. That's what we have here. He's using this type of rich language that you and I would immediately connect with in order to make a point. And and this point actually is one that we have a lot of experiential knowledge about. Because we know what it feels like right before the dam breaks, as it were, in conflict or in an argument. We know the feeling as it's rising up in our body and our flesh and our hearts. We know that decision as it's coming up and right through the throat and right about to come out of our mouths or out of our hands. We know what that's like. And the Lord is pointing us to this experience. There's a comparison here. The word like is indicating that two things are being contrasted. What's being contrasted? The beginning of strife, or you could say the start of an argument, the start of an attack, the the rehashing of an old offense, the the grudge being essentially dug deeper. That, That thing is being compared with something. It's like releasing water. This word, interesting word, it's used four other times in the Old Testament. The word is, is almost commonly translated in the sense of an opening budding flower. Here, though, obviously, it's in the context of water breaking through. And there's the idea. It's kind of like a tooth breaking through the gums or like a flower breaking through a bud or water breaking through a jar or through a pot. It's something that's coming out by force. It's not naturally being released. It's making its way and it's coming out. Here, in this context, we get the idea that it's more than just your coffee cup breaking open in the, in the parking lot of McDonald's. This is something more significant. It takes us back to Tacoa Falls. It's something bigger. It's something that has more water behind it. And you and I know what it's like to start these conversations with our spouse. You know where you're going with it. You know what your intention is. But, but rarely do we understand the potential behind it. That's the point here. The first response to this this movement of my flesh, not of the spirit, mind you, this movement of my flesh towards my spouse in a sinful or selfish way, the very first response is to recognize what I'm getting into. I I need to know, what am I signing up for here? Because when I sign up for that in my mind really quickly, I'm assuming, oh, this is going to be easy. My wife is going to be like, oh, yes, sir, I totally agree with you. What was I thinking? I shouldn't have said or thought that or done that. I, you're right, and I'm just going to yield to you. It, it, if you've been married, you know it never goes that way, right? If it does go that way, man, you better sleep with one eye open because she's fixing to get revenge, and it's going to go bad for you. 
No, because just as soon as it's starting to come up with you, you've got her over here or him. The Army Corps of Engineers is saying, all right, they're, they're getting their truck ready, their gear ready. They're going to battle too. And just as soon as you let out the dam, then that other spouse said, oh yeah, well, by the way, I've been saving up a couple hundred million gallons myself, and I'm about to release them on you. We underestimate the potential damage of conflict, and we allow it to flow too freely, wrongly thinking it's merely a trickle and not recognizing God has said it's more significant. When you and I willingly walk into that conflict or release it ourselves, we are getting into something far more significant than we understand. No, no, no one, only a fool would stand below Tekoa Falls as an engineer is standing on top saying, 130 million gallons of water are coming over right now. Only a fool would say, oh, that's not a problem, bring it on. You would get in your car and drive as fast as you possibly can. Yet, when it comes to our spouses, we're, we're ready. We're dug in and we're like the little boy facing an entire army, but we see ourselves as so big and impenetrable. We're always convinced we're going to win. We're, we're the Cinderella story, as it were, uh, with a March Madness theme, but what we don't recognize, we're about to face LeBron and the Lakers. It's not going to go the way we think it's going to go. And the worst thing is, is if it does go the way we think it's going to go, and we do seem to have victory, it's really a loss. Because now we've hurt the one that we're supposed to love and care for. We, we've done more damage. And we've really created for us a greater future problem. I'm not just talking about, by the way, these sort of nuclear blowouts. These, these sort of like massive fights you have with your spouse, I mean even just these everyday little struggles that we just can't seem to let go. But we have to insist we were right. And by the way, if your marriage is boiled down to who's right and who's wrong, beloved, I want to encourage you to get some help because you're in a bad spot. That, that idea where you've got to have the last word, and as husbands, we tend to do that last word in a new sort of an interesting way. We, we, we're only, we want it to be the last word, but we're okay if we're the only ones that hear it. And, and then the wife would say maybe, what would you say? Nothing. But the last word was in. That's, that's what I'm talking about. This is my house. It's going to go my way. We rarely recognize what we're getting into. At the beginning of conflict, the Lord is encouraging us to recognize, first of all, what's happening. The beginning of strife, the beginning of this attack, beginning of this argument, this thing you can't let go, this thing you, you feel like you've got to address, you've got to establish justice as if God doesn't exist, as if God's unaware of what possibly is going on, as if the Spirit of God is incapable of dealing with his sin. You've got to deal with it. The Lord says, just stop, 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 stop. What you're doing is bigger than you recognize. It's like a dam about to break. The second response is not only to recognize what you're dealing with, but to respond in a peaceful way. To work to ensure that water does not come over the dam. Go back to the text. The beginning of strife is like releasing water, semicolon, therefore... 
because it's more significant than I often think it is, because it has the potential to do far more damage, even if that damage is somewhat latent and behind the scenes and seemingly minor at the time, because it's such a big deal, I'm supposed to do something. I'm supposed to stop it. Now, this is hard because in the flesh, we always believe that it's our spouse's fault. We talked about this a couple of times this week. We are convinced that our behavior, our thoughts, our words are someone else's fault. So when we're cut off in traffic and we lose our temper and our spouse says, what are you doing? There are kids in the car. Our first move is, well, look at this fool in front of me. It's his fault. I only did it because of what he did. But the reality is the Lord Jesus Christ teaches that my words, my thoughts, my actions, my behavior, they come from my own heart. All that's happening when I'm cut off, all that's happening when the ump gives a bad call, all that's happening when I don't get the promotion, I don't get the transfer, all that's happening when things don't go my way is that an opportunity for my heart to be exposed is open. And who I am in that moment is who I really am. That's what Jesus teaches He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He says, out of the heart come all manner of sins. So the recognition here is that I am supposed to be focusing on stopping the contention. So how do we do this? How do we avoid this conflict? Well, first... The first move is just to do all that we can to stop it. Now, stopping can be hard, especially when that train's moving. You ever try to push a car uphill in gear? That's what it's like sometimes when the flesh is raging. But beloved, if you want to talk about how the Bible works, this is an example of the fruit of the Spirit. Don't, don't show me the fact that you're just busy in church and you always have a positive attitude and say, that's the work of the Spirit. You want to show me the work of the Spirit in your life. You want to talk about the, the fruit of the Spirit being born, show me the, the, the fruit of self-control. Self-control is the ability to stop that contention as that dam's about to break. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. More than that, that's what it looks like to apply this love that we're supposed to have one to another. Not just with our spouses. In the context of believers, I'm supposed to bear with all things. I'm supposed to be patient. Love's not easily provoked. Those are the things that I can apply to now stop this contention before it explodes. But what if we don't quit? What if we don't quit? Well, he goes on. He says, therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts, before the dam breaks. Because if if you don't stop it, the dam is going to break. Well, why wouldn't I stop it? What would keep me from stopping it? Well, consider Proverbs 13.10. Just turn over there. I, I want you to see this in your Bible. This is a great verse to memorize, to highlight. But Proverbs 13.10 describes why I'm reluctant to do the work of stopping and why I'm convinced it's, she's got to stop. Why do I always have to stop? Why can't she stop it? Why can't I just freely get mad? Well, listen to what the Bible says in Proverbs 13.10. By pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. By pride comes nothing but strife. It's pride, not love, that prevents me from stopping the quarrel before the dam breaks. And so if, if I don't quit, the reason I don't quit is pride. It's the flesh that's raging. But if I don't quit, I can be certain that I'm going to face this onslaught. So what would it mean to say stop contention? Well, it would mean to repent. 
That's what repentance is. To repent is to change our mind, change our direction. That's the idea. So if I'm on this path of getting mad, being bitter, attacking my wife, repentance is to stop that and to turn. Now, how can I do that? How, how, can, I, how can I access that power? Well, it goes back to the gospel. The gospel is the story of God reconciling us to him even though we started a war with him. We, beginning in the garden in a first father, Adam, we released the dam on him and we, we exercised our anger towards him and our frustration towards him and our demanding to be our own God and have our own way. But on the cross, the Bible teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ, who had come to live perfectly and fulfill the law for us, he stands on the cross and the dam of God's judgment is released on him. And he takes the full weight of all of that water and destruction so that we, by faith, could be spared. But if you continue in your sins and don't turn to Christ, one day when you die or the Lord returns, you'll face the dam break of God's judgment. And sadly, in that context, it will, it will break on you for all eternity. But because Jesus has done that, because he has, as it were, extinguished the, the full weight of the water careening over the falls of judgment, he's taken that for us. He's not only now forgiven us and given us now a new standing with him, but he's now empowered us and given us a model of what it looks like to forgive and love others. Ephesians 4.32, Paul puts it this way, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted." forgiving one another even as Christ has forgiven you. So he becomes now my model and the power to stop this contention. Go back to our text. Beginning of strife is like releasing water, therefore stop contention before a quarrel starts. I can do that because of what Jesus has done for me and because of what Jesus has done in me. He's empowered me and he's given me the direction. Now I can take the same mercy that I've received as Jesus stood in my place and took all the water, as it were, of judgment that I deserved from my willful rebellion against God, I can look to that and say, well, well, my wife's offense, my husband's offense, it's nothing compared to that. And so, Lord, allow me to apply that rescue I received to my spouse in order to stop this contention. But what if you've gone beyond this point? What do you say, Mark? Well, I wish it was that simple. You know, one of the things we do in premarital counseling, we actually do it in pre-engagement counseling, is we just sort of survey, how often do you guys argue? It's not going to go super good if you're engaged and you say, we argue no more than five times a week. How often are you guys together? About five times a week. Is anyone paying attention yet, Right? We're going to have a problem. Let, let's just say, though, that perhaps you've been married for some amount of time. You say, well, Mark, the dam has broken our family a lot of times. Well, that, that destruction is, is not something just, just to ignore. No doubt there's forgiveness and there's grace and there's mercy. But when water careens over falls, it creates canyons. It begins to erode things, and it can erode things in your marriage. Trust and confidence and peace and rest and intimacy, all those things can be eroded as this dam break of watery conflict can pour over your heart and pour over your life over and over again. So what do you do to prevent it? And what do you do if the water's already careened? Well, I want to give you some solutions. I want to give you some practical solutions in order to sort of address conflict in marriage looking forward and looking back. Let me start with, a, I'm going to give you three lists and we'll be done and we'll go home. Hopefully these will be a help to you. They've been a huge help to me and others I've shared them with. 
The first is a list of false solutions, and these abound. Let me give them to you. You may be familiar with some of them. Number one, just try to live with it. Just try to live with it. This is making the best out of a bad situation. Lots of folks in churches that are still married today, they're they're not in marriages that are filled with joy and hope. They might want us to think that, but they're not necessarily in those marriages. They're just trying to sort of make do with it. But otherwise, they're somewhat miserable. That's that's not what the Lord would teach us. The second one would be, uh, it's not worth the effort at this point. The problem's gone on for too long. The marriage is too far gone to try to change it now. Just, I've just essentially given up. This isn't a solution to your problem. This is a terrible strategy. Number three, I don't want to try to work it out. After years of conflict, I don't feel the same way I did about my spouse as when we first got married. Well, of course you don't. Because you guys haven't dealt with the sin and the conflict that's been so present by applying the gospel. And now there's bitterness that's set in. You've given Satan an opportunity. And as Hebrews says, a root of bitterness has taken ground in your heart and your marriage and your home. Number four, to downplay. It's not really a big deal. It's not a problem. And I hear this from spouses all the time, especially from wives. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. I'm just going to turn the other way. Or how about this one? Let it work itself out on its own. It'll go away with time. It it doesn't work with problems in your lawn. It it, it doesn't work with maintenance issues in your house or car. It doesn't work with your diet. It's not going to work with your marriage. The problems aren't going to go away. They're going to get worse. We're fine. Just ignoring it, pretending it. We're going to take a break from each other to work things out. Separating in order to fix it. There's another one I would add too. That would be sort of the superficial Christian cliche approach. All you need is more of this. You just need a new book, a new study, a new, new people to disciple you, new energy, new date nights. You just, you just need something more. Beloved, those things can be helpful, but those don't get to the root of these problems. Let me give you another list. Here's our second list. The second list are wrong ways we tend to approach conflict. Wrong ways we tend to approach that don't lead to peace. The first ones are false solutions that give us the idea that will help. These are wrong ways that don't lead to peace, but they're so common. Appease. Appease. This is where you just tell the other person what you think they want to hear to get them to shut up. You you just can't deal with the water coming over the falls anymore. You just don't want to face it anymore. I'm just going to say whatever I've got to say just to back out. I'm not actually addressing it. I'm not actually dealing with it. I'm just going to say whatever I need to say. As long as you're happy, as long as we can just avoid this, that doesn't lead to actual peace. Second one, of course, is similar to the first list, ignoring, pretending it doesn't exist, just sort of Avoiding the fight by getting in the car, driving away, and pretending that nothing happened and changing the subject. This merely delays the problem. The water's still there. It's just going to get more stagnant and more more nasty things are going to grow in it. The third wrong solution doesn't lead to peace is winning. This is one where uh, the spouse that's typically better at arguing and persuading people just says, well, in this moment, here's how I stop the water from breaking. I just make sure I'm the one that's breaking it, and it breaks all over my spouse. And so I'm going to make sure this argument goes all the way to the end, and I'm the one that's still standing, and I'm not concerned with my spouse. I'm not concerned with what they hear, how they feel, what happens to them as a result of it. I'm just focused on winning. 
Well, if your marriage has gotten to that point as well, you're likely also in need of help. Because this isn't a solution that leads to peace. This is a solution that enshrines your pride and really establishes that you're demanding worship of yourself. You've set yourself up as God. Let me give you the third list. Biblical ways to approach conflict. Let me give you three of them. I'll give you some verses to write down because I won't have time to get through these this morning. But let me give you three of them. The first way to, to approach conflict. We're talking practically how in the world do I stop contention before this quarrel starts. Number one, by yielding. By yielding. Right or wrong isn't the issue. Mercy and grace and love, those are the issues. Right or wrong isn't the issue. Mercy, grace, and love are the issues. I recognize that, that I'm going to cause greater harm to my spouse and to my marriage if I push this thing further. Even if I am right, it's okay. And so instead, I'm going to yield. Proverbs 19.11. Turn over to that one. Let's look at that one just quickly. Proverbs 19.11 establishes this principle so well. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. That's what we're talking about. Our marriages, our relationships, our homes, children to parents, parents to children, grandchildren, friends, we need to do more overlooking. We act like we're under the old covenant when it comes to someone violating our law and we insist justice has to be done. No, I have to be shown right. No, this has to be dealt with. No, they cannot be allowed to do this. But the Bible says that it's a glory for us to overlook an offense. Praise God Jesus doesn't treat me that way. Praise God, the Lord Jesus Christ is not in heaven. This one that we just rejoiced about in song, who's covered us with mercy and grace. Praise God, he's not in heaven saying, all right, I'm done with you. I've, I've had it up to here. This is the last straw. I gave you three more chances. Now we're done. I'm going to deal with this one. Praise God, when he's on the cross, he takes all of the water over the falls of God's judgment. There, there's not a reservoir that awaits now. Yielding is the first Biblical response. The second one is similar. Waiting. Waiting. Go to James chapter 1 verse 19. Here's, here's one. James chapter 1 verse 19. I would consider Romans 12 as well, 17 through 21. But James 1 19, consider this one. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. And slow to wrath. You see, sometimes when that dam's about to break, or rather, once it has broken, the very best response is not to respond. At least not to respond vocally to your spouse or to your children, to your parents. Instead, to go with your response to Christ. Wonderful, wonderful application of what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 6. Go to your heavenly Father who is in secret and close your door and pour out your heart to Him. Take that offense to him. Take your cares to him. And wait. Rarely, rarely do we respond off the cuff with grace. When it's off the cuff, it's almost always flesh. And so a wonderful biblical principle is to wait. Delay the response. Third one is a little bit seemingly wrong-headed, but it's actually biblical, and that's confront. There are times where a confrontation, a Christ-like, gracious confrontation is called for. 
This is when the situation is marked by sin. And yielding and waiting isn't the best approach. Maybe there is sin that should be dealt with. It should just be dealt with in the right way. Consider Galatians chapter 6. I would say also Matthew 18 and Matthew 5, 23 and 24. But go to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest also you be tempted. So this is generally going to my spouse or my loved one in grace and mercy and saying, hey, listen, I, 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 don't, I don't want this to turn into a damn-breaking situation. I don't want this to be a conflict, but I, I, you have to recognize this is sinful. This doesn't honor God. It doesn't please God. But you've sinned against me. You've sinned against the kids. You've sinned against this person. We need to deal with this and appeal to them as a brother or sister in Christ. And beloved, we've got to cultivate that in the body. We've got to become more approachable in this regard. If, if you and I respond when someone comes to us saying, hey, listen, this seems sinful in what you're doing. This seems selfish. This, this seems prideful. If my first response is to bow up when they do that, That's telling me I'm I'm not being very sensitive to the work of the Spirit because the Spirit of God works through the people of God in order to make us more like the Son of God. Oftentimes we cut that entire part of God's ministry out of our life, though. But confronting is often called for. Go to James chapter 3 and we'll wrap up with this. James chapter 3 describes in verses 13 through 18 sort of what it would look like to apply this and and, and, and how this is what God would have us to do. We oftentimes reflect the wisdom of the world. We reflect sort of sociology and psychology of the world, what's popular, of the common age, and, and we say things that, that really are less reflective of the Scriptures and God's will and more reflective of the times. Listen to this distinction in James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not, does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. And that's what's going on when I'm about to break that dam. I'm walking right up to the bottom of the falls. I've got to deal with that issue. I've got to be proven right. I've got to have the last word. In that moment in my mind, it seems so right. It's so rationalized, but it's all the flesh. That's not the wisdom of God. That's the wisdom of Satan. It's demonic. It's earthly. It's worldly. It's sensual. Listen to verse 16, though. But where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. That's really a summary of our text. That's what happens in our marriage when we just follow this demonic, earthly wisdom of following my flesh, following my feelings, and ensuring I work this out until I win. Listen to what the Scriptures say about God's will. Verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above... Wisdom here being a skill, the ability to use the knowledge that comes from the Word of God, a way of life. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Beloved, when you and I choose these biblical approaches in order to stop this conflict, we're reflecting the wisdom of God. 
And I need to hear this because I can convince myself so often that it has to be done. And it has to be done my way. But beloved, the Bible is clear. That is demonic. And it does not reflect the gospel. May God empower us through the Holy Spirit to apply the grace that came to us through this Christ who stood under the falls of God's judgment and bore it all for us. May the grace that comes to us through this act on Calvary that we experience not merely when we were saved, but every day. Every moment of every day, every night when I go to bed, my confidence is not in how well I've done. My confidence is in the one who stood under that water for me, as it were, so that I can now be free of condemnation, free of guilt, and stand reconciled before God. I've got to take that experience and just share it a little bit with the ones that I love that God has given to me. May God help us to do that. If you're here this morning and you've not yet allowed the Lord Jesus Christ's work, if you've, if you've not seen this beautiful Christ who stood before the wrath of God and absorbed it for sinners, if you've not seen Him in His glory, if you've not seen Him in His mercy and His love, you've not called out to Him by faith and repentance to receive this wonderful gift of new life, I would implore you, as Paul does, I would urge you to be reconciled to God I would urge you to call out to him while he can be found. Call out to him while he is near. The Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So if you're here today and you've not yet done that, I commend him to you and I would encourage you to talk to your pastors afterwards. But If you're here and you're in Christ, whether you're married or not, you're in relationships and you know this movement, I want to commend this biblical model to you. May we honor God not merely with our lips, but with our passion and commitment to stop dishonoring Him by breaking out these dams of anger and wrath and instead covering those we love with mercy and grace. Father, help us to do what only You can do in our hearts and lives. I cannot stop this. In my flesh, I want to do it. So, Father, would you help me, empower me, and strengthen me through the Spirit to see my role in this? You've called me to stop, not not my spouse to stop before contention breaks out. Help me to have a sensitive spirit before you. Help me to hear from the Holy Spirit as he brings conviction. And help me to honor you and bring you glory in this way. Help me to demonstrate the power of the Spirit of God at work in my life, not merely with these outward things that seem so common today, but these inward things in the heart, even if no one ever sees it but you, even if it's just the Spirit of God empowering me and covering my mouth before I make that common and and start that fight, even if it's that, may you receive the glory through your work in my life. And Father, for those that don't know you, may today Christ be glorious to them. May they come running to Calvary to receive grace and mercy. We entrust these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.